Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we have Dr. Andrew Temty, President of Corporate Learning at Kaplan North American, author of Balancing Act, Teach, Coach, and Mentor, and Inspire. Andy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, thank you for joining us today. Can Before we get started about the book, can you please tell us about your background, especially, I thought this was interesting, you were an aspiring rock star and what you learned from that experience. Yeah, well, that uh, telling the story might take the whole show, but I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, yeah, uh, as you mentioned, uh, when I was a young man, uh, I'm, I'm actually a high school dropout uh, uh, and uh, uh, left, left high school in the 11th grade uh, when I realized that there was, that I, I wanted to be a rock star, uh, and there was not much more for me to do in uh, in high school other than take shop and in uh, gym classes. Uh, so I left uh, I left high school in the eleventh grade. I got my GED and then started touring in in the upper in the upper Midwest, you know, Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, Minnesota, etc. And that uh, that journey taught me a lot about uh, about this about the business world specifically and how uh, you know my aspirations to be a rock star and to go into uh, into music uh, I, I totally missed and did not have uh, the mentorship around me to say, Andy, this is not about you on being on stage performing. Uh, that's a that's an important part, but the bigger part of it is, running you know marketing and uh, and and running in a running an effective business and that uh, that that's what uh, that's what we missed there um, so gave up on the gave up on the music at age 21 went right back to school spent the, the next nine years going from undergrad to master's uh, and then uh, ultimately a PhD in finance uh, and like you, a, uh, a, a serial entrepreneur, uh, by the time I was exiting uh, PhD, uh, the business that we I, that we started with uh, my mentor Carl Swayzer uh, had already taken uh, already taken off, uh, and uh, and so instead of entering academe as a finance professor, decided to uh, train financial analysts how to. Uh, pass the uh, the charter financial analyst exams and then in 1999 we sold that business to Kaplan and I've done all sorts of uh, I've had a I've had a very rich uh, career at Kaplan over the last almost 22 years uh, it's it's been a wonderful ride I've had all sorts of opportunities uh, to lead higher education institutions professional education uh, institutions uh, and right now, uh, I'm really focused on work readiness, uh, upskilling, and reskilling of uh, of the global population. 
So, so why did you write this particular book? And it was a super interesting uh, book, especially your own background and all the things you personally uh, talked about your your own um, your own experiences and the trail that you took. So, why did you write this book? Yeah, I I, I started writing the stories back in 2017. Uh, I, I knew that I had something to say uh, to the to the market, and there there would be uh, lessons that uh, and, and journeys that I've taken that were less than productive that I could uh, potentially save others uh, from walking down those uh, those same roads, or at least help uh, help minimize uh, waste. Uh, and effort by by helping guide uh, individuals through these stories. Uh, the the original cons I, I always knew that I wanted to turn those stories into a book. Uh, and the original concept was, I you know I've uh, for most of my career I've been a mid level senior executive within uh, corporate America, so not quite at the at the top of. Uh, uh, of a midsize or large organization, uh, but just below uh, that top layer, and there there are a lot of people that that fit in that category, uh, and so it was going to be the tongue firmly in cheek tales of a mid level senior executive uh, was was going to be the, uh, the, uh, the 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 theme, and what what I ended up with was uh, that I found that. I found that balance was uh, one of the keys uh, to, uh, to to the book. Yeah, and, and you talk about that throughout the book. I like the opening of your book and, and wanted to ask you to explain what you wrote. Success without balance is often more disastrous than failure with balance. Yeah, that's a, uh, that, that's a quote that takes a couple of uh, times through to really get at the at the subtext that's that's there. Um, you know, I would, uh, I, I have had a lot of success in, in my career, and I was uh, unbalanced uh, through, uh, through many of those, uh, those episodes dur- during my life. And, uh, and being unbalanced and, and having that success then provides all the, you know, the impetus to, to do more of that. But uh, but what I what I wasn't doing was was uh, was really focusing on the entire the whole picture. I was maniacally focused on one thing. I was missing many uh, uh, other parts of of my life, the the nuances and and the and the undertones uh, of of what my success uh, and the impact that that was having on those around me. So. Yes, I was having a great deal of success, but I was leading both myself and my family to uh, to some uh, real tipping points uh, that 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 were on the negative side of the equation. Uh, so I would rather be balanced, fail, learn from that, grow, and move on to the next uh, thing, than than be wildly unbalanced, uh, have success. And uh, and be a bull in a china shop, and uh, and 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 you know basically ruin relationships, and uh, and and uh, and and not you know not really uh, not really be be the the man, the father, the leader that that I need to be for those around me.
So what's the message to hard-charging Super A personalities here about getting balance and managing both family and your insatiable desire to be the very best in your field and to ascend to the C-suite? Yeah, that, you know, that the hard charging type A's that uh, uh, that are focused, you know, really focused on on one thing. Uh, I, at least in my experience, I have found that divorce rates are are higher uh, for for those individuals. And ultimately, when you reach that uh, that that ideal, that pinnacle that you've painted for yourself in in your mind. Uh, uh, how satisfying is it really when once you've reached that uh, that pl- plateau? Because there's always another plateau that you're going to go strive for, and the whole concept of of striking balance is uh, is to weave a bit more of the narrative that you know you you want you once you've achieved uh, so much in your life, is it really worth the the incremental effort to? to continue to be that hard charger or to open yourself up uh, to being multidimensional, to, uh, in, to ensuring that, uh, that, 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 that you're focusing on your family and, uh, and those around you. And most importantly, that shift uh, come, came for me where I realized a little too late in my career that it was less about me and more about the people that were around me and building them up and ensuring their success at the same time that I was driving for mine. Yeah, you, you wrote about, uh, about unapproachable, uncaring, unbalanced creates an ap- epidemic of disillusionment with the lower ranks of their organizations. I think we kind of just lived through that with the type of leader we just recently had in the White House. You have 70 million people, some very smart, and many are good managers. Why do you think so many people support this type of leader? You know, so we're, we're not going to get political here. No, no. But... <laughs> Yeah, the management style. That's what I'm getting at. Um, yeah, the the management style uh, is uh, is is really is really unsustainable uh, uh, through time. Uh, what I've found, I'll, I'll just speak about myself and my experiences because that's that's what I know and what I see around me. Uh, but leaders that take that hard charging, do as I say, thou shalt uh, kind of kind of a style. Uh, their turnover rates are uh, tend tend to be higher. Uh, the the cost of doing business uh, is 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 higher, and and the data is and the research is starting to really show that you don't get the diversity uh, of the minds uh, that that are around you. And I I really made that mistake earlier in my career, trying to uh, kind of fit out my leadership team with people that looked more like me and were and and uh and and thought like me and and yeah that got us to play that you know that that helped with speed but that really didn't help with a rich sustainable business environment where constructive conflict uh, is uh, is is really is really part of the equation, and it's okay to challenge uh, to challenge a leader, have uh, have difficult conversations, 
the leader opens their ears and their minds uh, to to what's possible, and you get a much much more rich uh, set of outcomes from that kind of environment versus the thou, the thou shalt uh, and you're fired kind of an environment. So, um, what is the profile of an effective leader, and <clears throat> does it differ from being a successful manager? And I ask this because. I'm thinking about Steve Jobs as the effective leader and Tim Cook as the successful manager. So what does the profile of the effective leader look like? Because it doesn't necessarily mean he can actually manage people. Yeah, you know, this concept of the the personality uh, that leads the business, that's, that's very important because in many cases, not all, but in many cases, a business centers around uh, around a strong personality, and and that's okay for a period of time. But for the long term sustainability of the business, it's important to uh, recognize that some depersonalization uh, ne- needs to occur. So having that uh, you know gregarious, uh, outgoing, that larger than life. Uh, kind of great man, great woman uh, type of uh, of a personality. That that that's awesome. But a great manager, somebody that understands planning, understands goal setting, understands how to cascade goals up, down, and through the organization, understands how roles and responsibilities are set, and builds organ and has a keen eye toward building organizational trust. Uh, you know that. That's the that's a balancing act that exists within those companies that have those 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 big those that are driven by those uh, by those large personalities and the ones that get it right have that uh, have that uh, proper balance and the gregarious leader that's out in front understands that balance. Uh, how important has emotional intelligence become for today's leaders? Because I think leadership has changed a lot over the last um, 25 plus years. So how important is emotional intelligence uh, become for today's leaders? You even hear it in college sports, um, both in football, basketball, and, and everything. Yeah, it, you know, more and more employees, uh, the, the concept of bringing one's whole self into the world of work uh, this this links up directly with diversity and inclusion, and I'm not just talking about color here. I'm t- I'm talking about diversity of opinion, mindset, uh, cultural background, etc. Again, the research is showing that that more uh, that you get out that you get more rich outcomes uh, from uh, from from those diverse experiences. Versus that versus that very uh, that very directive uh, setting. So if if it is the case, which I believe that it is, that you get better outcomes in the long run from having more diverse teams, more diverse backgrounds, being inclusive, the leader in that in that scenario needs open ears they need an open mind they they need to be able to uh to be empathetic uh to to the needs uh of of their team members and uh and uh, I'm not necessarily a fan of this phrase but meet their people where they're at 
and understand that people are, are the company's most valuable asset. Once a leader makes that connection that people are your most valuable asset and okay, my people, everybody's got their blank. Everybody's got their, you know, everybody's in a different place on any given day. And a, and a leader that assumes that everybody is just uh you know, coin-operated uh, cog in a big wheel, you're not getting the, the, the best out of that team. So empathy, communication, uh, those, the, you know, emotional, those are all wrapped up into that, uh, into that emotional intelligence uh, uh, category. Yeah, I think it's so changed. Just like, uh, you know, we, I love watching sports, but the Bobby Knight way of managing and coaching uh, players doesn't work anymore. And, it, and they all had to change. Even great coaches like Nick Saban have had to adjust with the times and what the expectations are. One of the questions from the audience is, I wonder if Andrew has an opinion on how much of our goals are driven by personal ambition as in self-actualization, Maslow's hierarchy, or actually ego-driven being competitive and just achieving to just um, beat the rust or prove others wrong? And does underlying motives play a part and how a manager performs. Wow, there there was a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole hour. Yeah, right. That that is, um, it, it, you know, in in the in the middle of the organization. Let, let's talk about the middle of the organization. You 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 get you get leaders and managers within the middle of the organization that are 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 ego driven. Are all about themselves. Uh, uh, ver, uh, the the way I would couch my answer to this is: we need to move much more toward uh, leadership being associated with stewardship of of the business, and much less about the individual personality. And uh, and so I and I've lived this over and over again in my career where. I've got a great idea. I think it's all about me. I want to go get investment for that idea. And the company says, okay, Andy, here's, here's your investment uh, for that. And this is on, this is all on you. Uh, what, what that environment does is it creates an us versus them within, uh, within the company. And, uh, and whenever, you know, some level of internal competition is is certainly good, but at exactly the same time, we've got to recognize that that within a corporate structure, we're all in this together. Again, people are your most valuable asset, and as a leader uh, who's thinking about the both the short term and the long term, if you put on a stewardship uh, hat and a stewardship mindset. All of a sudden, the lens uh, starts to change about what my role is in this company, and it's then less about me and more about the success of the whole and the and the success of the business that I work for. And if I get all that right, then my personal success follows versus the other way around, where I'm worried more about my personal success than I am about. Uh, the collective and and the people that are around me. So you write about waiting to give feedback once a year isn't very effective practice. What do you suggest, and how should that work? Yeah, that. So 
the subtext of the subtitle of my book of my book is teach coach mentor inspire and the the thing that many managers either get wrong ignore or don't know how to do well is the second word in that list which is coach I believe strongly that managers uh, should be coaching their people throughout the year and that the the annual performance review uh, should frankly die uh, within most organizations. We should have continual feedback, continual coaching, two-way feedback between the the manager and the employee uh, because if, if you think about the annual performance reviews that you've been through as uh, you know, the folks in the audience today, most of those annual performance reviews are fear-based and not, uh, not development-based. It's very, very difficult to, on an annual basis, get together and it's the, like the only time you have this conversation, the employee is scared to death the manager doesn't do these things very, very often. They only do them once a year. So the manager is not very good at them either. And, uh, and so the, uh, and so the whole product is, is bad and becomes almost a compliance exercise. We need to move the annual performance review away from compliance and toward continual coaching, continual development that's linked to the goals of the business and the educational objectives of both that the team, the employee, so that we're continually developing uh, individuals uh, to continually up upskill them throughout their career. At Kaplan, do you teach promising managers how to coach, not just manage the situation, but how to maximize the potential of the people around them? Yeah, like most organizations, that answer is it depends. It depends on the business unit. It depends on the geography. We're, uh, at Kaplan, we're uh, a, a truly global business with operations in many different countries. Uh, I would certainly like to see more consistency of, uh, of application there. Uh, uh, through, throughout Kaplan, but this is this is is from my experience a systemic issue uh, across many organizations, and one of the reasons why uh, coaching platforms uh, and Kaplan has one uh, in full disclosure, but coaching uh, platforms that utilize tools like the one that we're uh, using today. Uh, and democratizing coaching uh, uh, and making it available to more individuals in the organization uh, and not just the elite or the C-suite or your high potentials and high performers, uh, that, that's a really encouraging trend that, uh, that we're seeing. How, as you write in the book, do you read people by looking them in the eye? Yeah, the the eyes, uh, the old saying, the eyes are the the window to the soul. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it, it's very uh, easy to uh, make assumptions about people based on their appearance, uh, and uh, and and so this, you know, evaluating people through what's going on uh, in in their eyes is very difficult. But what I look for is a very intangible ingredient in an individual. 
And I characterize that as the light that shines, uh, that shines in their eyes. Uh, and when I'm having a conversation with somebody, I, I need to have, I, you can't do this just once. This doesn't come in one interaction, but that if you see somebody over and over again, and you consistently see this light, the spark uh, in, in their eyes, it's almost assuredly that they're not performing for you uh, as, in a, as, as in some sort of theatrical performance, but there's something genuine and authentic there. So a lot of people write about the concept of authenticity. I feel very strongly that the authenticity of an individual uh, comes to you through, uh, through that light that's, uh, that's in their eyes. I've heard uh, people often say that they can read somebody by their eyes. And I think also FBI agents and other law enforcement are taught to do uh, that same thing. How do you motivate a talented person with no drive? I mean, I think, especially, I think a lot of people, especially parents see that where they have a child that has all kinds of talent but they seem really unmotivated and aren't willing to embrace what they have and maximize it. Uh, so, and I'm sure you see that with people that you end up hiring and think that they could be so much more. So how do you do that? Yeah, I think this is uh, a lot A lot of the part of the two-way street, which is the manager and employee relationship, meeting uh, individuals where they're at. And yes, I hired you for this particular uh, job, uh, but to work with individuals on what really uh, in their job description, what really motivates, what really uh, trips, uh, trips their trigger uh, and, uh, and, 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 uh, and gets, uh, gets, the, gets them motivated. Uh, so diversity of experience uh, and, and, and as a manager, watching out for those signs that, uh, that an individual is just caught in their, their, they're wrong. They're they're the wrong person. They're either wrong person, right role, uh, or or some combination of 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 the above. Uh, and uh, having I talk about multidimensionalism uh, a lot, and being more than focusing on just one thing, uh, and having folks try. Uh, and expand their uh, their repertoire, uh, shall we say, is uh, is is a very important uh, thing. And if you expand your repertoire as an employee and work as a manager to expand the repertoire of your people, you're going to find those rushing streams that people that your people really start to connect with. And sometimes you have to say goodbye, uh, do a kindness uh, to to folks. Uh, who are who who do not connect with the work, the mission, the vision, the purpose of your business, uh, but uh, but but to explore and to help individuals find those uh, those those rushing streams that really that that really do uh, that really do get them motivated. And the two way street is they've got to be wanting to do it, right? Yeah, there has to be some. I, I find that the vast majority of human beings. Uh, have that ability to find drive. Uh, it might, the, but the, 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 the word of caution that I would give to leaders out there is that 
the, the that person's definition of drive is not necessarily your definition of drive. And that's where having those emotional intelligence skills, the situational awareness, uh, to be able to, uh, to, to, to see that where your definition and their definition are not, uh, not congruent with one another. Uh, my, early in my son's career, I, I had that, uh, I, I was so frustrated because my definition of drive and motivation was, was different, different than his. Yeah. And you have to recognize that, especially with your, with our kids. How was the transition? Because we have a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to the show. How was the transition from entrepreneur to working for a large company? And uh, why did you do it? And it seems to me that it's been very successful because you've been there 22 years. Yeah. I When we sold the company in November 22nd, 1999, you never forget the day that you sell your, the, that you sell your company or your, 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 you probably your first company, uh, you know, Mark, you've, you've, you've probably sold many companies as a serial entrepreneur, but I, I remember that date specifically. And I expected to come on board. Uh, my, my business partner wanted to retire at the time and I was going to take over the business for Kaplan. Kaplan knew nothing about the chartered financial analyst education space. So I was going to spend a couple of years getting things set and settled and then move on to uh, onto something else. What I found within the environment of Kaplan, especially in the uh, mid-2000s uh, and leading up and, and through the Great Recession, was an environment of great dynamism and, uh, and agility and, and a tapestry and a framework that allowed me uh, to, uh, to, to build new skill, to test and to iterate as if I was an entrepreneur doing it, uh, uh, you know, in a small team environment from the outside. So I, I got that, uh, that rush, if you will, of building and testing and finding that success, seeing that failure, learning from it, growing from that failure within this, this global uh, company called, uh, called Kaplan. So I've, uh, I, I, I've, uh, I decided to stay and, uh, and really enjoyed the ride. But within Kaplan, I've probably had uh, five or six different careers uh, during uh, what, what some people would consider five or six careers during that, uh, during that 22 year span. I thought this was interesting. You mentioned the Gallup poll said that only 13% of employees are engaged in their work. Disengaged employees cost 34% of an employee's salary. Why is that? And how can companies change that? I think it's been an ongoing struggle for quite some time. Yeah, disengagement. And I, I, I start the book off with my personal story, uh, uh, but but quickly in part one move into the damage that disengagement uh, is causing businesses uh, around around the world and I tell a couple of stories of how I've seen disengagement uh, evidence itself uh, in in the in the workplace and the. You know, we we all have uh, in large businesses and even in some mid-sized businesses, you have the annual engagement survey where you're trying to uh, gauge the the relative level of engagement of of the business. 
most HR teams focus their attention on what they call the movable middle, those that are kind of indifferent, sitting in that big uh, pool in the, in the middle uh, that uh, don't score high, but also don't score uh, super low either. Uh, and, and yeah, those people are, many of them are just punching the clock. Uh, they haven't quite connected with the purpose and the vision of the organization. Maybe they've got a poor manager and they just need uh, a bit more uh, mentorship and TLC, co more coaching to grow. But there's a thin red line that exists in most engagement surveys. And those are the actively disengaged in your organization. Those are the people that either hate their manager, uh, they're, they're, they're literally working every day to, uh, to uh, uh, cross purposes to the organization that they're getting a paycheck from. And, uh, and those, those individuals are very damaging to the organization. They're the toxic, uh, they're the toxic uh, uh, parts of teams. They, they hurt uh, and, and in some cases preclude the, the development and the growth of trust within the team and within, within an organization. And, and a lot of managers uh, kind of ignore that and HR organizations ignore that, uh, that red line. And what I point out is that the disengaged within organizations are destroying corporate value uh, and not adding to it in any kind, of, uh, any kind of meaningful way. So it's very, very important uh, to, to understand uh, that disengage, disengagement uh, exists within your organization and, and then to work to build everybody up so that uh, set great goals, uh, set great objectives, so that those who are disengaged in the organization show up like blinking red lights and you can have either critical development conversations to help get them back on the right track or put performance improvement and plans in place uh, to uh, to ultimately exit them from from your company because they don't want to be there and you don't want them to be there. Uh, so it's it's best for everybody to identify and move on. I found that when I've let people go uh, because of that, they were grateful. They just didn't want to pull the plug themselves, and they felt bad about it. Um, but they wanted to go. And when you pulled it, they, it was a big weight taken off of them. I always thought that was really interesting. And, and I found in my, my own career, I once was uh, CEO of a company and every day I was hoping the train would come off the track so I wouldn't have to go in. And after six months, I found somebody to replace me and I was the happiest guy not to be running that company. How do you get employees to be receptive and positively act on criticism when they might feel they're being rebuked? Yeah, well, this, this goes back to our conversation about emotional intelligence and uh, and and empathy, and being that you know very directive, you know my way or the highway uh, type of leader. Uh, if 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 you're that type of leader where you're very directive. And, uh, and, and you, as the leader, have not developed active listening skills, your people pick up on that right away. And they know that any type of constructive uh, 
uh, feedback or criticism about the plan, about the business, about the direction of the team, individual workflow, et cetera, that uh, that, that pushback is not going to be met uh, with, uh, with with any kind of receptivity. So you just don't get it because humans generally abhor conflict. Uh, they try to avoid it at, uh, and many people avoid it at all costs. So as a leader, the way that you draw that out is by uh, leading by example and, and bringing folks into a session uh, where, where, where you're, where, where you're, uh, where, where you're, where you're promoting uh, that kind of uh, again constructive uh, feedback. The exercise that uh, that that I like to take to take people through is a, a very simple question, which is, what would the, what would you be doing if I wasn't here? If I, the leader, the manager, if you removed me from from the equation what would this team what would this business be, be be doing would you be doing something different and if you would be doing something different let let's have a let's have a conversation about that uh, now it takes a healthier team to be able to engage in that so there's trust building uh, that needs to occur prior to engaging in that kind of conversation. Uh, but but I, I have found in my career that, that that simple question, that simple framework in kind of a half day offsite, a full day offsite uh, can really yield benefit. Uh, and when you, we've been talking about emotional intelligence quite a bit here, but is that something you're born with or can that be taught and developed? I feel strongly that it can be uh, Taught and developed. Uh, there is the id of of the uh, of, of the individual, the the self that we are born with, our our base our base self that uh, might be uh, might have a, a predisposal to uh, to to uh, more empathy and uh, situational awareness. Uh, but 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 I believe this is a skill. That can be uh, that can be taught, that can be nurtured. Uh, everything takes practice, and uh, and one of the ways that that I've done it is I wait. I've wait. I I I I'm brushing my teeth in the morning. I look myself in the eye, and I and I tell myself I'm going to really in my meetings today really open my ears and really work on those active listening skills. And when, when I've done that and just focused on active listening, I've found that I'm more open to, uh, to other uh, positions and, uh, and opinions. Uh, and when I'm quiet and not talking, uh, I, you know, we, we have two ears and one mouth for, for a reason that the, as the old saying goes, and I, you know, when you when you start using them in that proportion, uh, then uh, then then the, these other these other skills, uh, the 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 empathy and the emotional intelligence uh, can can really start coming to the fore. Do you find there's a difference between um, men and women? And I because I always uh, hear and I've read, you know, that when men hear a problem, they immediately want to go and solve it. Women have a process and they want to talk about it and talk it through and and listen and then discuss. So is there a difference in styles between men and women? 
Well, as a guy, that's a very dangerous question for me to uh, to, to even address because I'll, uh, I'll, I will almost assuredly get it wrong. But there's, uh, I, I believe, you know, if we just go back to diversity and inclusion, the, uh, you know, we, we know that organizations that are diverse and inclusive to uh, to a, a broad range of thoughts and opinions uh, within their organizations and different perspectives. I call them. I call that the lensing effect in the book. You know what what color lenses uh, I wear. You know, recognizing that we all come from different geographies, different cultures, uh, different genders, etc. And, and having open ears and open minds uh, to those, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily fair to, to kind of put folks in one box or another. And once you start doing that and make assumptions that a female is better at X than a, than a guy is, I've almost always gotten myself in trouble by, 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 making, those, uh, by making those broad assumptions. Uh, but you know, we, we, we do all come to the table with uh, different skills and ability, diff different perspectives, and, uh, and embracing uh, and putting our arms around those different perspectives uh, is, is, is one of the keys to the future world of work. So please explain your concern with entropy and why it needs to be fought. I love the word entropy. Um, it's a cool word, uh, but it, it it essentially it's it's part of the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, you know, we're not going to get into a, a physics conversation here, but entropy is basically the concept that uh, with enough time, every process, every system falls apart. The universe is falling apart. The you know my body is is falling apart. Uh, your business is uh, falling apart at any given at any given moment if left uh, to its uh, in, in its current state, uh, and the so this concept of entropy is then balanced with continuous improvement. So I like to think of it as a virtuous cycle. That the natural state of things is that everything is falling apart, relationships. Uh, teams, whatever you want to talk about, and uh, and and part of the natural order then, uh, and 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 our and especially our intelligence as humans is to be putting those systems back together. And if I go back, even connect back to stewardship, I have an obligation as a human on this planet to recognize that almost from the minute that I'm born, that things are starting to fall apart and I need to be continuously working to improve them and, and put them back together so I can be the next, next best version of myself, the next best version of a team, my family, my, 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 my place of employment, or the company that, that I'm running. So if you think about continuous improvement and entropy going together and this virtuous cycle, it, it can open your mind to uh, looking at the world uh, in, a in, a different, in a different frame. No question about it. Uh, can you please explain uh, reskilling revolution and how that will affect businesses' success? I, I just read about something like that in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this morning about uh, matching people's skill sets with the jobs that are available. 
Yeah. So I'm really fortunate. I serve on the uh, skills consortium for the World Economic Forum. Uh, World Economic Forum is uh, one of the largest and most prominent geopolitical organizations. Uh, it uh, runs the Davos Conference uh, every year and has the, its fingers on the pulse of many uh, societal issues, uh, climate change, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and re and skilling and the and job readiness job relevance uh, in a in a world in the fourth industrial revolution where also a term coined by uh, one of the leaders at World Economic Forum uh, but in this fourth industrial revolution what makes this industrial revolution different from the ones that that came before it is that we have computers that can think at low cognitive but ever increasing cognitive levels. So to keep, so humans uh, to keep their relevance in the world of work, we'll have to be adopting new skills, new abilities uh, over the coming decades uh, to maintain that relevance. And back in 2018, World Economic Forum started uh, their research on this topic and identified that by Early 2030, we need to reskill, not upskill, reskill up to a billion people. Uh, once one eighth of the global population will need to be reskilled over the next 10 years. Now, that's different from upskilling, where you're in your current role and you just need to learn a, a new skill or two to maintain relevance in existing role. I'm talking about moving from old job to new job and reskilling. And that is, uh, and, and there, you know, I could talk about this all day, but the punchline here for business leaders is that the, uh, is, is that, uh, the degree and, the col and college colleges and universities, the outputs of colleges and universities are not going to be enough to uh, upskill uh, and reskill a billion people by 2030. We need new ways of identifying talent and allowing talent to come into our organizations. And that is through the concept of stacks of certifications or badges and what I term skill portfolios. Right now, job descriptions and human resources practices are heavily weighted toward the degree as the signal of workplace competency. And we, we, need, we need a different ways uh, to identify that and get out of this business of having job descriptions that say thou shalt have a bachelor's degree for this particular role and instead say thou shalt have this portfolio of skills as demonstrated by the attainment of these shorter form courses or these experiential uh, lear learning activities. You think uh, it's, I'm kind of going off a little bit on a tangent here, but where, what do you think of the future of colleges and universities? I mean, we're seeing even in our area in Philadelphia uh, over the last five, 10 years, a lot of mergers are happening with universities and people are getting priced out of the education market because the average, um, the average uh, uh, tuition is $34,000 a year at, at a state and school. And if you're talking about private schools, you're talking about 60,000 and up. 
uh, not that people pay that sticker price. So you being on the uh, World Economic Forum uh, Committee, what's your take on where universities and college degrees and are we going to see a reduction? Because there's 5,000 universities, I think, in the United States. Are we going to see um, 10 years from now that there's only 3,000? Uh, yeah, Mark. I so there uh, by last count. By last count, I saw there are four thousand four hundred ish higher education institutions in the United States alone. Uh, my my boss, Andy Rosen, uh, wrote a book uh, eleven years ago, ago called uh, Change.edu, and uh, in that in that book. Uh, he he predicted uh, the consolidations of higher education institutions that you're seeing today. Uh, that the uh, that the the environment of of uh, your local college and university being more like uh, like a resort or uh, you know with awesome dorms and climbing walls and lazy rivers and all of that stuff you know, that to attract students, that is unsustainable because my other, my other Kaplan uh, friend, Brandon Bustide, uh, he, he writes about this topic all the time. And uh, I believe that you're about, you're about right on that by or the early 2030s, we'll have closer to 3000 higher education institutions in the United States. And we will see a rise in what are called non-degree credentials that are, uh, that are awarded by major companies. And you're already seeing this happen with Adobe, uh, with Microsoft, with Google, uh, with uh, and uh, and Amazon are are already starting to mint uh, credentials for certain skill uh, for for what what I termed skill portfolios previously, and so we've got a lot of work to do uh, because just over the last few years that pool of non-degree credentials and badges has exploded to almost a million uh, non-degree credentials uh, here in the United States. And these are everything from, you know, those little LinkedIn badges that you see and, uh, and, and, and other badges that aren't validated. They don't contain currency within the hiring process of, of organizations. So the, to specifically answer your question, the college and university is here to stay. They're going to be around for a long time. They will be relevant. But right alongside that, as a pathway to good paying jobs, we, we need validated micro-credentials that are stackable like Lego bricks that either lead to a degree or, or, or uh, and that, that might be a nice to have, but definitely lead to jobs and lead to uh, upskilling and reskilling within uh, th those companies that accept, uh, accept those credentials. So, so, yeah, and that's another topic, Mark, that we could talk about for at least an hour. Yeah, it might be that we get down to like 120 schools that are all Division One football and basketball schools, um, because at the end of the day, um, without your sports teams, at least in the U.S., because if you go to school and I've taught in other countries, uh, there's not the close tie to universities that we see here, which is based a lot on that on the sports uh, scene of any college. One of the questions we have from the audience is, will online learning replace them? I heard a uh, neuroscientists say that regarding education and brains, that students should be allowed to learn 
what they want and what is relevant to them? Yeah, so uh, I, I believe strongly that we're moving much more into a hybrid environment where uh, online learning is going to be an essential part of the educational process. This has already started in earnest. If you go to college today, uh, your professor in Economics 101 uh, has all of his or her lectures uh, uh, up uh, posted onto YouTube or some uh, internal video uh, uh, platform. You can stay in your dorm and watch the lecture, uh, and then uh, and but the 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 thing that online learning only does not do is it is very difficult for gaining experience and the experiential learning that is essential to building skill and capability. If I just put you into an online only environment and ask you to write papers uh, all day to prove that you, to somehow prove that you know something, that paper does not mean that you know how to actually do that thing in the world of work. So there's, so I believe very strongly that we're entering a new phase of the educational environment where you're going to see much more cooperation and collaboration between educational institutions and businesses to either, to, to either provide more experiential opportunities when you're talking about a learn to work path into the, into the job market, or alternatively, you're going to see many more work to learn pathways into the jo into jobs, uh, where work to learn means that uh, that uh, that a business is hiring school leavers or high school graduates or maybe one year of community college, and then taking those individuals in as apprentices or 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 paid interns. Unpaid internships should not be part of our society anymore, but paid internships and apprenticeships where you're on the job, you're being mentored, you, you're, you're learning on the job, and ultimately the degree and the credential comes after a time, uh, a period of, of work with, uh, with, with that business. Uh, so that work to learn uh, pathway uh, it's very much congruent with the non-degree credentials that I talked about before, but you're going to see that connectivity uh, with businesses. So you get this hybrid of the online, which is awesome for certain applications, and then the experience that, that you need to really show that you know how to do something. And Drexel University has done a very good job of that because here in Philadelphia, and I've taught there, they have a essentially a five-year program in one year, you get uh, paid internship, and um, like 98% of the students end up with a full-time job, and, and almost 90% of them with the company that they interned with, and so they learn all those skills, and I, I kind of think that they're going to end up blowing up the university, at least in the business schools. That's where I've taught at, at lots of schools. I taught 10 years at Wharton, and I found that a lot of the schools don't encourage the business professors to keep working in the field, and so what they teach the kids is irrelevant. Uh, to what's really happening out there. And that's sad. The under 35 generations become very reliant on technology to communicate instead of words. 
you wrote about three rules regarding one-way email communication. What are they and how do you get young leaders to be less reliant on email and text messages? Because they could be standing right next to you and they're not talking to you. And even when they're working in the same room together, they're texting as opposed to having conversation. Yeah, well, the future world of work is all about human interaction and human connection. And one of the dangers of uh, of of the of digital natives, of which my sons are uh, early in the digital native uh, category, is that you communicate via emojis, and everything is a one way communication. Uh, you know the what you're missing there is the nuance of the physical interaction either over video or even the inflection of the vo- of the voice in in a in a telephone conversation so i in 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 my book i I've got this small section called email is the worst uh my pu- i the the original title for that was uh, email is the devil. My publisher wanted me to change that, but uh, you know, e- e- email email is very dangerous because uh, you know I can I I gain a great deal. I have a great deal of courage when I'm sitting at my computer by myself uh, typing out an email to Mark about what a crappy job he did on X Y Z product, and it's really easy for me to talk at you through uh, through uh, uh, digital communication uh, devices instead of talking with you about. Uh, how to, uh, about how to get better, uh, and uh, you know we see this with internet trolls. Uh, this kind of one-way communication, which is I, I believe very dangerous. So rule number one: pick up the phone. Rule number two: do a cooling off period. Even if you have to write that email, write it, put it in the can for 24 hours. Come back to it and look at it again and say. Would you really have written all of that if you were, if you know, if you were uh, sitting face to face to that individual? And then, and then, obviously, uh, rule number three is to be checking yourself for tone and uh, and for uh, kind of hidden meaning in uh, in in your message. So, uh, I I feel very strongly about. Uh, just just pick up the phone, walk down in in a future state where we're where we're back in a, in offices in a hybrid fashion. Walk down walk down the hall and actually talk to the person you're having an issue with. Yeah, I, I, I even had a neuroscientist on and said that people have lost 22 percent of their brain capacity during this lockdown without the interaction of individual without the human interaction in person. And I believe that because we all stimulate each other. Here's my last question for you. If there was one thing you learned from your past that impacted your future in a positive way, what was it and what could the audience learn from it? It's like your Miss America question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I I would just tell the, I would, you know, and this comes out in the book, but I am, uh, I am divorced and remarried to the same, uh, to the same lady. And uh, that was a glutton for punishment. Well, you know, it's a it it is a true love story. Uh, uh, It's it's a very it's a very unique story, but it was told it was completely avoidable. Yes, there are some people that just aren't compatible and they don't they don't belong together. But I did not 
work hard enough on myself early enough in my career to really understand what made me tick and what I needed out of relationship and, uh, and my relationship with work uh, that I that I got wildly unbalanced. And had I had I had I worked on myself a bit more earlier in my career, understood my personality uh, a bit more, uh, we 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 may have had uh, may have had a different result. So it's my my message here to be clear is uh, is that therapy is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, and and we talk down at people that have experienced and gone through therapy, and we got it. We got to stop that because, you know, working on yourself is a really really good thing, and we need to promote uh, promote it more. If it was good enough for Tony Soprano, it's good enough for the rest of us. There you go, Andy. Thank you so much for being on with us today, and uh, it's a great book. I hope people will uh, come out and get your book. And um, keep doing great work, and especially now knowing that you're at the involved with the World Economic Conference, and um, I think that's great. So have a great weekend, everybody. Have a safe weekend. Hope to see you all next Friday. Take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.